0: Hello, good morning. Morning church. Thank you, Jem, for reading that. And thank you, the marshals as well, for a really, really lovely prayer, really special. So thank you. Um, I'm Neil. I'm a member here at Creech. And anyone who's been with us since the year BC, so before coronavirus, will probably, probably know me best as the, the generous unit that sits tapping a wooden box in the van on a Sunday. But right, let's, let's kick off properly and let's start in prayer. King Jesus, we submit everything to you in humility. And reverence and awe. Someone once said that we know you only by your willingness to create and we thank you for giving us the Bible, your word, as something we can dig into, something we can grapple with together. Holy Spirit, draw us near and bring the word of God to life for us today. Speak Lord, your servants are listening. Amen. Now in the Bible James tells us that it's good to confess our sins to each other, but I have to admit I'm not entirely sure what I've done to upset our minister Matt. But there must be something, otherwise why would he hand me the hot potato of a sermon on healing? Here you go, Neil, he says Acts three, the healing church. Thanks, Matt. And um oh and I have had a look and next week I'm preaching on the question of once saved, always saved, and then I think the week after I'm digging into human sexuality and gender identities. So um infropenny, eh? But anyway, I think I think healing is a bit of a sensitive topic, probably for two reasons. I think the first is that we all come at it with different expectations. So some of you will believe that God can and wants to heal miraculously today. Others of you might say, no, it doesn't really happen today. Whatever his reasons for healing in biblical times, the Lord no longer interacts with the world like that. And then others of us might be just, I don't know. So we've got to different expectations, but... We've also had different experiences. Some of you will have seen mind-blowing miracles. So in 2006, after a time of prayer for healing, I saw my wife, Abby get up and start running and dancing around having spent five and a half years confined to a wheelchair. It was unbelievable. But some of us won't have witnessed that sort of thing. And maybe think it's all a bit odd and hocus-pocus. Or we've been desperately wanting to see profound healing for someone in our lives, yet all we've ever observed is painful decay. Tragically, we also know that people can experience miraculous healing one day, but long-term doesn't last and the condition returns and the pain starts knocking back at the door before barging in and taking up residence in our bodies all over again. Now we have to admit that there's a lot we don't know. We can't, and we shouldn't, I don't think, explain away suffering. Our minds can't comprehend God in such a way that we understand why he apparently heals some, but not others. We don't know why sometimes God moves in great swathes of his own volition. And other times it feels like our years of prayer haven't even roused him from the deepest of sleep. I'm certainly not going to sit here and offer any explanations because I don't know. And I don't think God always tells us. But Acts 3 does reveal an awful lot about God, his character, his relationship with his people, and the guarantee he does lay before each and every one of us. So let's, let's have a look. As you probably know, Matt mentioned it earlier, we're going through a sermon series on the book of Acts. It was written by the disciple Luke, and it's the second installment to his gospel, which focus on the life, death, death and resurrection of Jesus. It's an eyewitness account of the birth and growth of the early church. Luke claims in here to be a physician, and the reason he wrote all of this stuff down was to provide someone called Theophilus, plus other non-Jewish Christians in his clan, a reliable historical account. But Luke was also an evangelist, compelled to share the good news of Jesus, intending that what readers see happening in the past would have a direct impact on their behaviour in the present. So in that sense, you might call Luke a medical missionary. So a quick recap. In Acts one and two, we saw Jesus bid farewell to his disciples before taking the divine elevator up into the clouds and off to heaven. And then having waited patiently, Jesus' followers watch the Holy Spirit descend at Pentecost like fire and causes all manner of confusion and wonder. It was a bit like being outside of weather on a weekday morning with people crying out, It's only nine AM and everyone's drunk, but with a lot more God. Anyway, by the time we get to Acts three Peter has already given his first evangelistic sermon, earnestly telling the crowds to repent and be baptised in the name of Jesus, to be forgiven and to receive the Holy Spirit. 3,000 people accepted the call and were added to their number. Now that's what a really good sermon can do, so thanks Peter, no pressure. And then we come to the section we're focusing on today. There's loads in here to unpack, but for our purposes this morning, I want to break it down into two sections. First... You've got the healing of the beggar in verses one to 10. Then Peter gets into his groove and delivers another whopper of a sermon to the crowds in verses 11 to 26. They're helpfully divided up in my Bible by a subheading, but rather than two separate consecutive steps moving us closer to the crescendo of acts, I want us to see that both these parts of the story are intrinsically shackled together. So we need to understand one in order to fully appreciate the other. So let's, let's start with the healing. Now, verse one, Peter and John are heading to the temple for prayers at three in the afternoon. This means that they're still observing the Jewish custom of attending three prayer times over the day, 9 a.m., 3 p.m. and then sunset. So they were still mingling as part of the devout communities of both the Jews and the Gentiles, the non-Jews, orientating themselves around the implications of Jesus and getting used to the idea that the Holy Spirit, once reserved in the Old Testament for specific people, to fulfil specific tasks, was now poured out for all believers. Where we've got the benefit of hindsight, we know, how the boy, by, um, we know how the biblical story ends, they were on the frontier of something very, very new indeed. Now, we often look at the Old Testament and think it shows us what God was like before he went on an alpha course and became a Christian. But, of course, for the disciples like Peter and John, they were living out this bewildering story of God, unpacking itself one moment to the next. There was no sense of God then and now. This was a revelation of God that would expand their understanding of reality one day at a time. And the disciples, almost overnight, they transitioned from a ragtag bunch of Jesus' pupils, often little more than glorified crowd control, to apostolic game changers performing signs and wonders by Jesus' unquenchable power. No wonder they were still attending prayers at the temple, it was probably one of the few things they could do that offered routine and stability and continuity. So anyway, they reach the gate of the temple, and they see this beggar, who's been there for the day, as was his usual routine. And I'm not sure who put him there, it doesn't tell us. It may have been family or friends, or I wonder whether it's more like an employer or a beggar pimp who would treat the poor man as a source of income, a bit like the slave girl that Paul encounters in Acts 16. She earns a lot of money for her owners through her fortune telling. By the way, sitting by the temple was sure to get you seen by plenty of passers-by, especially the religious types who like to display their piety by giving to the needy on their way to worship. It was was a praiseworthy thing to do in that tradition. I wonder if the beggar, who had been without use of his legs since birth, ever had any expectations, either of the Jews who wandered past or of the God they were going to pray to other than a few coins coming his way in order to survive. And he sat there for years, day in, day out, wondering whether somebody would really notice him, whether God would ever lower himself to the beggar's level to turn his face towards him and heal his ailments. After all, it was common in those days to assume that disability was the result of direct or generational sin. Uh, remember in John 9, when the disciples noticed a man and asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? doesn't really offer the beggar much hope does it and the impression luke gives of a man who'd resigned himself to his daily ritual version four um, sorry verse four suggests he wasn't even looking at peter and john when he routinely asked them for some money and something out of the blue happens peter's left the house without his wallet that day he's obviously not bothered about splashing the cash so people view him as pious but here he sees a greater need so it doesn't matter What he lacks in gold and silver, he more than makes up for in empathy and faith. He declares the name of Jesus, reaches out a hand and pulls the man to his newly employed feet with miraculous results. And look how the beggar reacts. Whatever his view of the religious people he'd watched for years, whatever his experiences he had of them throwing money at him of using him as a source of their social credit, possibly of them ignoring him unless it was in their best interests and not his, doesn't matter. He's just experienced God for himself. He's probably just lost his only source of income. His identity as the beggar or the cripple has been torn to shreds. He's got no job and now he's going to be forced to redefine his own sense of identity. Ah, what the hell, you forget about all that. It's time to walk and jump and praise God. The whole place erupts with wonder and amazement. I suspect many of us can probably relate to the beggar in this story up to the moment of his healing. Sitting for years, wondering whether there's any hope of God paying attention to us, far less meeting our needs. Maybe we've lived with an ailment of some description for longer than we'd want to remember, or we live with and pray for someone we know is suffering. Our hope is slowly eroded by starting every day with the ever optimistic, how are you? I need to hear the same numbing response. I'm okay, the same. I wonder if some of us start to wonder whether the lack of healing in our lives is somehow related to the amount of faith we have. Maybe I don't have enough faith for God to heal me. I think that God probably could do it, but maybe he doesn't want to, at least until my faith has grown. Maybe I'm not believing it hard enough for it to work. If that's you, I want to say emphatically, here and now, it's a lie. Don't believe it. It's absolute baloney. I mean it. God's healing is not hindered or prevented by a lack of faith. You see it here. The beggar only expected silver or gold, but what he received was the grace of Jesus' full and unquestionable healing. Telling someone they need greater faith in order to bring about healing causes such heartache for those who remain unhealed. It tries to replace the rich, mysterious will of God with something weak and esoteric, this sort of formula as if he's predictable that way i knew someone at a previous church who had lived with a pervasive debilitating illness for years and she was once told by a well-meaning but misguided christian at a house group that essentially she lacked enough faith to be healed And you know what after that comment the young lady faced every day not only with physical pain but now with the added burden of condemnation and guilt for possessing inadequate levels of faith she needed to be healed That one remark also challenged her understanding of God as being someone unfailingly compassionate and unconditionally loving. It was so damaging. Now, it's true, the Bible does give us some very definite examples of Jesus withholding his miraculous power in certain circumstances. But it typically appears to be in scenarios where there's active unbelief going on rather than uncertainty about whether God is God, whether he's capable of healing and or whether he chooses to heal. Here in Acts, we don't know how much faith the beggar had, if any, but we do see the faith of Peter in spades. So at the very least, this passage shows us that trust in the capability of Jesus to heal is enough for healing to take place. And that faith will be present in the prayer, if not so much in the prayee. The very act of genuine prayer is itself a step of faith. As Gerald Kelly says, we know that godly dissatisfaction has a role to play in our growth there is a hunger inherent in the life of prayer without which it has no power. I'll say that again. We know that godly dissatisfaction has a role to play in our growth. There is a hunger inherent in the life of prayer without which it has no power. (coughs) Friends, I want to apologize on behalf of the church and on behalf of other well-meaning Christians for any occasions where you've been told God is withholding his favour and his healing power until your faith measures up to some arbitrary standard. May you be released of that burden today in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you've been praying for healing, keep going, keep persevering, keep wrangling. Acknowledge today's bleakness like that of Easter Saturday without losing the optimism that everything changes on Easter Sunday. Dry bones can come to life and know that in the process, your faith in and reliance on Jesus can grow. As Ali says, we can choose to sink knee deep into our life dung, rendering us immobile and stagnant, or we can use it as a life fertiliser to encourage new growth. And she should know she's been married to me for 19 years. The other thing I want to touch on briefly whilst we're here is the fact that Peter tells the beggar to walk in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It's Jesus who has full authority. All the disciples could do was rely entirely on the Holy Spirit's power and not their own. It wasn't their godliness, nor magic, nor merely the sound of Jesus' name, but Christ himself at work. Peter tells the crowds this much in verse 11 when they stand gawping. All we can do is pray restlessly, knowing that everything depends on God and trusting him with the rest. Now, it's easy to pray in Jesus' name without really thinking much about it. I'm guilty of that as much as anyone. Maybe tagging in Jesus' name to the end of a prayer makes us feel like we've just given it a bit of context. This prayer isn't to anyone else but Jesus, yet when we say in Jesus' name, we're actually acknowledging that we can't come before the throne of God any other way, only through Jesus. You see, I have no rights before God and no claim on him except the mercy he's shown me in Christ. If you compare me to holy you'll see that i'm actually very very short indeed none of us have any glory or self-assurance of our own and we deserve nothing from god except his wrath at our sin and rebellion and yet and yet jesus is our intercessor our high priest who can prepare us to meet a holy god who can introduce us to a holy god and who can cause a holy god to look on us favorably without us having any fear of judgment or rejection. It's Jesus alone who gives us the privilege and opportunity and joy to bring all things before God in prayer. And that leads us nicely to the second part of Acts 3. Peter addressing the crowds who'd just watched the crippled man man, walk out of the temple with two men walking and praising God. The structure of Peter's message follows a similar pattern to what we've seen him preach before and will be used again in both his and Paul's future sermons. It was evangelistic preaching, telling his audience about the good news of Jesus in a way the crowd could relate to. So it traces the thread of Jesus right back to the deepest roots of their Jewish religion, their communal identity, their entire worldview, back to the likes of Abraham and Moses. It wasn't a softly, softly approach either. Look at it. Peter had no qualms about giving it to the people straight. Read the things he says. In verse 13, he tells them they handed Jesus over to be crucified. In verse 14, he calls it disowning the Holy and Righteous One. And in verse 15, he says they killed the author of life. They acted, he says in verse 17, in ignorance. They had unwittingly rejected Jesus as the Messiah, as the Saviour. And this was their moment of revelation. Blimey. Face it, he tells them, your situation is dire and now's the time to repent, to turn back from your wicked ways and once more face towards God in order to have your sins wiped out and to be refreshed by the Lord. Earlier, I suggested Peter's message here and the beggar's healing that came before it were entwined. The healing was more than a convenient opportunity for Peter to bash the grass over the head with a guilt hammer, letting the focus of the story slowly move on and his wife. Now, there was no Hebrew term for body. And in New Testament times, they never regarded the physical body as having a reality all of its own, separate from the mind or the soul, which meant the concept of health in that culture included not just physical well-being, but things like life, blessedness, holiness and maturity. It was actually the emergence of Greek philosophy that started to change things. So the likes of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, all, in some way, championed what's called uh, mind-body dualism, the idea that there are two separate entities made of different substances. And we see it in Paul's writings, for example, when he encourages the early Christians to keep themselves physically pure instead of doing the sort of stuff they'd see going on around them in the prevailing culture. Because back then it was common for people to think they could do what they like with their bodies because it wasn't going to influence what happened to their souls. The former could be naughtily promiscuous now whilst the latter would remain nicely preserved for the future. So how does that act relate to Acts 3? Well, the fact Luke's telling of this scene starts with the physical healing of the crippled man's feet, but doesn't conclude until the gospel is preached and restoration is promised, reminds us that God is interested in the whole person, not just either the body or the mind or the soul, but the whole lot. And Throughout his writing, Luke does show us that Jesus heals. He is interested in repairing our health. Jesus does want to deal with our ailments. He does want to free us from negative labels and a damaged self-identity. He does want to help in tackling shame and guilt, in soothing grief and loss, in repairing relationships and propagating forgiveness, and in unlocking depression and shining a light into our darkest, dustiest corners. But inspired by Peter, allow me to be absolutely blunt here. Biblically speaking, there is something worse and more pressing Than any of these things, and it needs to be dealt with. It's a sickness that ultimately leads nowhere except to death. The singular thing each and every one of us needs saving from most is the prospect of hell and eternal separation from God. You might remember in the Gospels when Jesus says, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus took the price of sin very seriously indeed. And however uncomfortable it makes us, however uncomfortable it makes me now, we must take it seriously too. The secular charity I work for has over the last 20 years worked to reduce the orphanage population of Romania from about 117,000 children to just over 4,000. And in the next 10 years, we're confident we'll reach zero. I recently watched a video of iNut a child we helped rescue from one of Ceausescu's brutal orphanages, and he's now an adult working as an ambulance paramedic in Bucharest. As he talks, the emotional scars of Inut's childhood are painfully evident, and he describes his job as a way of helping others, somehow trying to tackle or make up for the injustice he himself had experienced. I can't help but feel a profound sadness, for Inut, now free of the orphanage, but forever living in its shadow. We could rescue Ina from the institution, but without offering him the hope of Jesus, there's nothing more we could ever rescue him for. You see, for Peter to help heal this beggar's body in life, only to see him perish in eternity, would be a terrible cruelty. But the healing of Jesus here is of the whole person. The beggar asks for money, receives the use of his legs, and his praise propels him into an entirely abundant new life in Christ. Jesus does, doesn't just reach into the gutter and pull us out, leaving us on the side of the road to fend for ourselves again. He cleans us up. reclothes us in royal robes, heals our wounds, and then says he wants us to spend eternity enjoying his presence. We're saved from sin and for Jesus. And I'd argue that's the most miraculous healing of all. Not only that, it's also available to all, no exceptions. No wondering, why them and why not me? So he stood alongside Theophilus and every other believer down through time. We can read Luke's account and be certain that we're no longer strangers to salvation. We sit squarely within the unfolding drama of God's chosen people. We're a guaranteed part of his rescue plan. When we turn to Christ and accept his offer, in that moment, the rift between us and our creator is reversed. What was shattered by sin is now healed by the Spirit, and the deception that human life without God is both possible and favourable is exposed to the lie it truly is. Ali and I have often dreamed of doing a self-build ever since we got together last century, but the more we entertain the dream, the more we realise we'd probably rather restore a historic property back to life than build something from scratch. Because a property of history comes ready with tales to tell. Its walls come imprinted with the lives of generation. It's a space built through the countless acts and actions of the people who lived or worked there before. It's not a sterile blank canvas, but an evolving story ready for a new chapter. And that's what Christ does to us when we let him. For now, we might have an emotional crack there and some physical rot there. But slowly and surely, he will restore us back so we eventually imperfectly match God's original blueprint, drawn up for each of us long before creation. To cite C.S. Lewis, Jesus wants to turn each of us into a palace that he intends to come and live in himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, bring your church to full health with resurrection power. What we know not teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. In the beautiful name of Jesus of Nazareth. Amen.